Welcome to Chatting with Asians. On this episode, I chat with Chris Chung, who recently became the first Asian American state legislator in Indiana's history at 25 years old. With no previous political experience, he was able to beat longtime Republican state rep Hal Slager by 82 votes. This was such an inspiring conversation, where we talk about his winning strategy, how his ethnicity played a role during his campaign, and what he considers his accomplishments and setbacks from the 2019 House session. So here's my chat with Chris. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I wanted to kick things off with the first question, which I know will make me sound like such an auntie, but your parents are doctors, your sisters are doctors, and their husbands are doctors. So why didn't you become a doctor? Yeah, that's still a question I get from my mom. Like, do you want to go to med school? And I'm like, no, I'm I'm good where I am right now. Uh, For me, it was just about, I don't like blood, honestly, and I don't like bodies. And I thought I wanted to be a doctor when I was little. But after like volunteering at the hospital, that was the worst thing ever. So I decided, oh, gosh, I need to find something else to do. (laughs) Right. Not blood related, not body related. (laughs) So instead, you decided to go into politics, and you didn't have any prior experience. So how did you end up into that world of politics? And what made you ultimately decide to run as house rep? It was a meandering kind of path that I took. I studied engineering in college, and then I thought I was going to go work on Wall Street or something. And I ended up not liking that after doing an internship there and learning more about the field. So I decided I would go back to work in real estate investment in Chicago. And I worked for a smallish kind of medium-sized company that specialized in investing in really disinvested neighborhoods in Chicago, like on the uh, far south and west sides. And we specialize in bringing in more institutional money and investment to these neighborhoods that have previously seen no new apartments or anything. And I thought it was a good balance between the capitalism, but also the social responsibility. So I decided to go there. And then all of a sudden, that was kind of in the midst of the 2016 election. And around that, I started paying more attention to politics just because it became so inescapable in the news cycle. And I wanted to learn more about the electorate. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to start getting more involved. And then I kind of just fell down the rabbit hole. And here I am today. (laughs) (laughs) And there you are today. So you decided to run for House District 15. And I think what's incredibly fascinating to me is that your opponent was a big dog political veteran. House Lacker is a long-term Republican, served 10 years as town councilman, served three two-year terms as a state rep. You know, he had more name recognition and probably a more significant level of campaign donations. So you must have felt like this seat was a seat worth fighting for. What did you think set you apart from him? And what could you bring to the table that he couldn't? Yeah, that was a big part of our calculation that my opponent, not only had he had such a long record of being in politics in our town and in our uh, House of Representatives, But he also had a very tight relationship with our Speaker of the House, who controls a lot of the donations coming in to the party. Um, And that was something that was very daunting to go up against at first. A lot of people told us we couldn't do it. And of course, like I was a little bit um, think like I was prepared to lose, honestly, if, if it didn't work out, because I knew that our odds weren't greater than 50 percent. 
Um, and then we ended up squeaking out a win by 82 votes out of 25,000 cast. So it was a very narrow election. And that was definitely a big part of our calculation. And But that's also one reason why no one wanted to run and why I was uncontested in the primary was because everyone was so scared of him. So we just knocked on a lot of doors and did the best we could. And I ended up loving political strategy. I never knew I liked it before because I never worked on a campaign before. But I ended up loving the whole aspect of determining your messaging, determining what you stand for, and finding out how to build consensus around people who have really disparate opinions. And in this politically charged climate, that's something that I think is really important to do. Yeah, for sure. And during your campaign, did your ethnicity become an issue? And do you think it's still an issue now as a House rep? It's not an issue. Well, I guess there's a little bit of both sides to it. So it's not as big of an issue, honestly, uh, than I thought it would be. I honestly thought that we would get more racism during the campaign and more racism while I was in office. And I'm kind of used to it by now because growing up in Indiana, even though we're like a suburb exurb of Chicago, we don't have a lot of Asian people in my district at all. And I am really very oftentimes the only Asian person in the room, especially at political events, especially at community organizing gatherings and volunteer events in our neighborhood. So it was something that's daunting. But at the same time, I have been so warmed by the warm reception that I received from my colleagues in the House and Senate. I think that me uh, knowing how to be pretty tactful, knowing how to be diplomatic when I'm negotiating with representatives and senators who just don't have any clue what it's like to be Asian or what what kind of struggles we deal with in our community and what kind of things are the rights are the right and wrong things to say uh, just it, being tactful and explaining things to them without attacking them has I think gotten me far enough to earn some of their respect and we're going to keep working on spreading that message so that I'm not the only Asian person in the general assembly and that we have more electeds all over the state. Yeah, that is super fantastic. Um, The 2019 session finished back in April, and that's where Indiana House state reps decided what bills to pass or not to pass, and it ranged from energy to education to environment. Specifically, this year's focus was also on setting a two-year budget of $35 billion. Since this was your first session, which bills did you feel like were your biggest accomplishments? There were definitely wins here and there, for, for sure. I mean, setting the the budget can be a very fraught process. As you can imagine, you have all kinds of interest groups from all over the state clamoring for a piece of the $35 billion and saying that their priority is the most important. And, you know, you've got to deal with all kinds of reputation management and all kinds of managing people's interests without uh, with, while being diplomatic to everybody. So while I didn't vote for the budget, there were important provisions in there that we did secure and that we thought were good for our region, namely a big increase in funding for infrastructure in Northwest Indiana. We have a very highly trafficked roads that a lot of the trucks coming in from Chicago and going between Chicago and New York Uh, go across and that we have to get a lot of improvements that have been backlogged for a while because they haven't been able to find the funding to uh, repave the roads in the last few years. But we were able to pass some big infrastructure reforms. We were able to kill a really bad uh, environmental 
a law that would have uh, put a moratorium on green energy plants in our state. It was something that the coal industry in southern Indiana was lobbying really hard for, but we were able to come together in a bipartisan way and kill that provision because there were so many people opposed to to, the, to putting a moratorium on green energy plants. I mean, the economics just makes sense at this point. It's cheaper to have solar and wind energy. The utility companies have been planning for decades to retire their coal-fired plants. The business and consumer groups want to pay the lower rates that, you, that renewables will afford them. I mean, you've got all kinds of interest groups coming together and, and passing this in a bipartisan way. And then in the last thing, I would say, that uh, was our biggest accomplishment that we'll, we'll still be fighting off next year is the payday lending industry came into Indiana and they're really trying to weaken the felony loan sharking statute and really trying to create more exceptions to the law so that they can issue these triple digit percentage uh, APR interest rate products to more Hoosiers. And they're really just all the data show that they're such predatory products. They're pretty indefensible. We've banded together with the faith communities who have denounced these products as usury and also the veterans community who has been specifically targeted by some of these high interest loan products. And uh, yeah, we all came together and defeated that in a bipartisan way. But we know it'll be back in, in January. So I'm already working in the summer to fight that next year. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, did you feel that there were any setbacks in this year's sessions? Absolutely. I mean, everyone, even regardless of party, if you're in the majority or if you're in the minority in Indiana, we, you are not able to pass your agenda most of the time, not not nearly 100% of your agenda. So one thing we were really disappointed by was that we have the lowest paid teachers in the Midwest in our state, and we did not issue any direct funding increase for teacher salaries. And that's something that was very disappointing to us because we are sitting on really good macroeconomic conditions. We have a big budget surplus of over $2 billion. And mind you, that's taxpayer money that we collected and just haven't dispersed. So there's a there's a bit of a push-pull and like, it's good to have a budget surplus, but only to a reasonable level. I mean, if you, on one hand, we're overtaxing people if we're not spending the money back on the people who gave us that money. So we've got to make sure that in future sessions that we can increase our funding to our public schools and make sure that our teachers are no longer the lowest paid in the Midwest. We're also number one in the nation in cuts to teacher pay in the last 10 years. So Indiana teachers have been really feeling the pinch, and that's something that is of top priority. And again, that's what I'm working on in the summer and fall this year as well in the off session. Mm, well, now that the session is over, what are you going to be spending your time doing? Well, we have to run every two years in the House of Representatives, so they're very short terms. And basically, as soon as you get in, you have to be back campaigning. And we're just letting the community know that I have been working. And even though I'm a freshman in the super minority and I'm from a swing district and I'm young and Asian, well, I'm the youngest member in the General Assembly and the only Asian member, you know, even though I'm in that precarious position, I've been working pretty hard to try and communicate to our district that their needs come first, that their my door is always open if they have any issues with state government and not even like legislative priorities, but if they have issues with Medicaid, which is administered by the state, or if they have issues with a pothole or any local government officials that have been giving them some grief, they are always open to come to my office. And we've been having many, many town halls. In fact, that's one reason I decided to 
run and a campaign promise that I made was that my predecessor, who I defeated, had like one town hall meeting in 2017, which I thought was outrageous. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I thought that was outrageous because there, he's, you, I mean, we work for the people and we have we have 65,000 bosses because that's how many people live in my district. And we've got to make sure that we're accountable to them. So I've had over 14 this year. So we're, hoping that, we're hoping that we can definitely communicate to our voters that we work for everybody, regardless of who you voted for. If you didn't vote for me, I still work for you and we'll still fight for you. And that's what we want to make sure, because I think that ultimately will make government better and more friendly and responsive for everybody. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the next question that I had for you is that, well, you're going to be going to Korea and Japan soon as part of an invitation to tour the countries. What are you looking most forward to and what do you hope to bring back to the States? That's correct. So I'm really excited about my upcoming trips to Asia. And I do want to clarify that these are not paid for by the taxpayers or by campaign funds at all. They're a combination of grants and out my own uh, out-of-pocket expenses that we'll be using but what we're doing on these trips is to Korea, we'll be not only meeting with some other Korean legislators from around the world, like Russia and Uzbekistan and Asia, and I think there's a couple in South America and Europe, we'll be exchanging legislative ideas and priorities that we've championed in other parts of the world, because we know that more often than not, we are united by our characteristics, not divided, regardless of what country we come from. So we want to learn from each other and exchange some good ideas, especially around education funding in particular, because Korea has such a strong education system and strong outcomes. At the same time, they have things that uh, are shortcomings for their population, namely the stress levels and suicide rates of their youth. But we still want to be able to crib some of their good ideas and use them in Indiana or in other parts of the country. And then in Japan, in December, we'll be going uh, as, not, as another part of a legislative delegation, me and five other Asian American legislators from around the United States will be going to meet with some of Japan's elected officials and exchange ideas on how to increase trade between our states and the country of Japan, uh, increase uh, education, um, as was a priority in our state, and then just learn from each other because building those bridges will ultimately make us, I think, better elected officials overall. Man, that sounds like such an awesome opportunity. Um, I have one last question for you before we wrap things up here. And it's really about looking back on the past year. How has the experience impacted you and your family? I mean, especially being the only Asian representative. Yeah, I mean, it's been such an eye-opening experience. And I always tell people, I'm never going to forget this job. No matter how long or how short I'm in elected office, I could always get knocked out next year in the election. And that if that happens, then whatever. But it's something that is such a unique role compared to anything I've ever done before. And I always encourage people to think about themselves in these elected offices. And it doesn't have to be as high as legislature. It can be school board. It can be a park board, town council, whatever it is. There are many opportunities where people too often dismiss or write themselves off as being not qualified or not being intelligent enough. And really, all you've got to do is sit down with the issues for maybe a few hours and you can understand a lot of what it takes to run government and be really observant and ready to ask questions. And then you can probably be in elected office too, 
or maybe help somebody else get into elected office, like another Asian person, because we are so underrepresented across the country and at all levels of government. So it's such a blessing to be able to do this, quite honestly. And I'm, I still can't get over the fact that I represent 65,000 people in the Indiana House. It still kind of blows my mind. But it's something that is so important to making our democracy better. I mean, seriously, regardless of party, regardless of what your ideals are, I think if we get more people to run for office who aren't part of these huge dynasties or, you know, aren't from these families that control local politics for years and years and are just kind of fresh faces who just want to do the right thing and aren't interested in this being like a stepping stone or this being some kind of um, long fulfilled goal that your parents prescribed to you when you were young. Like this is just about making government better because my God, especially nowadays, we need government to be better and work for everybody. And we're not going to solve it if people are sitting on the sidelines. So I meet with people one-on-one if they send me an email or if they text my cell that, uh, if, and they're interested in running for office, I'll meet with them and explain to them what I did and just try to be really frank about it and what this and what my strategies are. I think um, that that component of the strategy that I really like doing was very helpful to me. And I don't want to sit on that knowledge. And I want to be able to help uh, um, people across the country get into elected offices and especially Asian people, because we're so underrepresented. We are the highest income I mean, most educated demographic, fastest growing demographic in the country, yet we are underrepresented at every level. So we've got to get more people into elected office for sure. Yeah, we definitely have to get more people into elected office. And on that note, I want to say how much fun I had during this conversation. So thank you again so much for being on the show, Chris, and for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you so much for having me, Angie. enjoy listening to my conversation with Chris and thank you so much for tuning in. This is actually the last episode of the second season and I'm currently working on the third season, but in the meantime, feel free to follow me on Instagram at chatting with Asians. Music was produced by Paulina Vo. You can follow her on Instagram at Vobot spelled V-O-B-O-T or on SoundCloud at Paulina Vo. See you in the next season.